You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. David Guzik here on another Thursday afternoon for my live YouTube question and answer. Every week that I'm able to, we get together here at 12 noon Pacific time, whatever time that is in your particular time zone. I'm glad that you could join me. Or of course, uh, there's many more who watch it later uh, in the recorded version. And we're very grateful for those people as well. What I do is I come here online live on YouTube and I just uh, begin with an opening question that has come in through social media or comments on a video or email or something. And uh, I'll answer that first. And then we go to whatever questions come in on the side chat. So it's a time I enjoy. We're here for anywhere to 45 minutes to an hour every Thursday. And I did just want to say that there's a lot of other content on my YouTube channel. Uh, not only is there a lot of teaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, there's also videos that come out on particular topics. I think that just something on my heart, something I think needs to be spoken to. Last week, last Thursday, I did a special video on the idea of uh, are Christians really being persecuted? And if you're interested in that, take a look at that video. And then also every morning at 6 a.m. Pacific time, again, whatever time that is in your time zone, you have to figure that out. But at 6 a.m. Pacific time, I release a video of a daily devotional kind of thing, just anywhere from uh, four to five, to six minutes little thought from God's word. So that's what we're doing here this afternoon. Excuse me while I take a drink of water. And um, as we do that, I want to begin with our lead question today. It is simply this. Are Christians going to face judgment? Will Christians be judged? And this question comes from Texas. And here, uh, that's the name, their handle, their screen name, so to speak. Uh, not their location. Maybe it is their location as well. But from Texas comes this question. If when we die, we go to heaven or hell, where does judgment day come in? Would a saved Christian still be judged on judgment day? If so, why aren't we forgiven for our sins? Well, Texas, I got to say, that is a great question to ask, and it's something we need to think about very carefully. Uh, we, we believe that the Bible teaches that when a believer dies, they go to be with the Lord. As Paul said, the apostle, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. As Jesus told the thief on the cross, the one of the two thieves, the one who believed, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, all the rest of it just brings us back to this simple, simple thought that believers go immediately to the presence of the Lord when they die. Now, it's always difficult trying to sort out things chronologically when it comes to the things to come. But from every indication we have, the ultimate judgment of God, what we sometimes call the great white throne judgment from Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, that happens later. It happens at some time in eternity future. Here's what it says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose faith, 
face, heaven and earth fled away, and there was found no place for them. Notice, we see the mention of a great white throne. That throne is great in its status. It's great in its power. It's great in its authority. And it's white in its purity and holiness. But make no mistake about it. It is a throne. It is a place where a king reigns in divine sovereignty. And after seeing that great white throne, there's found no place before heaven and earth. And then continuing on here into verse 2, we read this, excuse me, into verse 12, where it says simply this, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Now, that describes a great and a comprehensive judgment. Matter of fact, in this account in Revelation chapter 20, starting at verse 11, there's many uh, things given to indicate that it is a comprehensive judgment. It speaks of judging the living and the dead. Uh, it speaks of everybody being judged. Later on, it's going to speak even of those from the sea. It, it presents it in terms that indicate for us a very comprehensive judgment. However, many, if not most, Bible scholars believe that Christians never appear before this great white throne. Now, it isn't because we can hide from the great white throne. Nobody can hide from the great white throne of God's judgment. But the idea is this, is that we are spared from this awesome throne of judgment because our sins are already judged in Jesus at the cross. We don't escape the judgment of God. We satisfy the judgment of God in Christ Jesus. Every Christian has a judgment day in at least two senses. First of all, it's the day their sins were judged. Now, for those who reject Jesus, those who are destined for eternity apart from God and his Savior, Jesus Christ, that happens at the great white throne judgment. But there's a, another sense in which for Christians, their day of judgment was the cross. That's when their sins, <clears throat> excuse me, that's when their sins were judged. Do you get that? My sins as a believer in Jesus Christ, and I say that including yours as well, if you have put your faith, if you have repented and believed in Jesus Christ, then your sins were judged in Jesus at the cross. And they were judged completely so. Therefore, what sins remain to be judged at the great white throne for you? <laughs> zero. That's the answer. It's none. It's zero. That is, again, for the one who has put their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially his work on the cross. Now, that's the first aspect of judgment for believers. Our judgment day is not the great white throne. Our judgment day is the cross. And it's as if God says this to all of humanity. God says to humanity, 
you can pick your judgment day. Repent of your sins. Put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. Do that, and your judgment day can be 2,000 years ago at Golgotha, where Jesus paid the penalty for your sins. If you refuse to do so, then there is a judgment day awaiting you at the great white throne, as Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and 12 mention. That being said, there is a second day of judgment that Christians need to keep in mind. Christians will have to stand before another throne, the throne we call the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, either good or bad. You see, therefore, when we pass from these bodies to the world beyond, and our resurrection bodies in heaven, of course, we must each give account according to what we have done, whether good or bad. That's exactly what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says. You see, at the judgment seat of Christ, what we have done or not done will be judged. But that's not all. Also, our motives for what we have done will be judged. Paul presented essentially the same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 12, where he spoke of a coming assessment of each one's work before the Lord. And in that passage, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul made it clear that what we have done and our motive for doing it will be tested by fire. And the purifying fire of God will burn up everything that was not of him. Please note, the judgment seat of Christ is not punishment for the things we have not done rightly. In other words, the things we did not truly do unto the Lord. No, the judgment seat of Christ, at that place, the things that we have not done unto God's glory, both in action and in motive, will simply be burned up. And it will be as if we never did those things to begin with. And we will be rewarded for what remains. I think it's kind of sad to consider that there are some people who will get to heaven thinking they have done great things for God. And they will find out at the judgment seat of Christ, when the purifying fire of the assessment and the judgment of Jesus passes over what they did and their motives for doing it, those things will be burnt up and it will be apparent to them that they really did nothing for God, certainly nothing great for him. And rewards will differ for God's people in the age to come. So Texas, I hope that answers your question. You are absolutely correct that Christians will not appear before the throne of God's judgment, what we call in the Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and 12, the great white throne of judgment. We will not appear before that throne. However, having been saved, 
what we do for the cause of Christ, how we live unto his glory and our motives for doing those things, that will be assessed by Jesus Christ. And the things that we have not done out of right action and motive will be burned away and it will be as if they never existed. So I hope this is, is there a judgment for Christians? Yes, there is a judgment for Christians. The judgment seat of Christ, as mentioned there in 2 Corinthians and in 1 Corinthians. But we will not face the great white throne judgment. Our sins were paid for by what Jesus did at the cross. So I hope that's helpful for you. Um, I'm very grateful that God gives humanity a choice as to when their day of judgment will be. And I hope you are in agreement with me saying it's much better to put our faith in Jesus Christ in who he is and what he has done, especially what he's done at the cross and the empty tomb, the true Jesus, the Jesus revealed to us by the Bible. It's better to do that and have our judgment day already passed there on that afternoon when Jesus Christ was crucified at Golgotha. So let me go on now to the questions that make up our side chat. Happy to get to these. And uh, it will begin with something from Christian who says, uh, Hi, Pastor David. What did the man in Mark chapter 9, verse 24 mean when he said to Jesus to help his unbelief? if he had already stated that he believed. Well, Christian is drawing attention to that wonderful verse in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, where the man who I believe had an afflicted son came to Jesus and he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And it's such a beautiful thing to say to God. And Christian, I just think, that if we look to our own experience to God, we know exactly what the man meant. Now, if we go just by the words, maybe we would say, oh, that man is speaking in contradictions. Maybe he doesn't know what he's talking about. There's nothing really there. No, no, that's not the way we want to go with this. Because um, this goes beyond a mere analysis of the words to look at the heart that the man had, which said this, Jesus, I really do trust in you while at the same time recognizing that my trust in you is not perfect. There are many flaws and weaknesses in my trust in you, yet I cannot deny that I do in fact trust in you. So the man said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. If we understand what the man said there in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, it really helps us to understand what Jesus, um, excuse me, what our faith should be in its character towards Jesus. There are many people who are very troubled by the idea that they are unable to perfectly believe. They are unable to chase away absolutely every doubt, every questioning. And they think that unless their faith is perfect, they will never be saved. That is the wrong way to think about it. Brother, sister, 
You are not saved by the perfection of your faith. You are saved because you have a perfect Savior in whom you have placed the best faith you can come up with. Don't worry about trying to have a perfect faith. Instead, concern yourself with bringing the best faith you have to Jesus Christ and put it upon him. So, Christian, I hope that helps you. We kind of understand this by our own experience, what the man meant. He couldn't deny that he believed, while at the same time he understood that there was some element within him that he did not believe Jesus perfectly. Okay, on to the next question. From Hannah, who says this, Hello, Pastor David. God bless you. How should Christians view and act upon the Sabbath? How did Jesus do so? Can you talk about the Ten Commandments law and how they relate to us today? Thank you. Okay, Hannah, I'm going to do this uh, without any prepared comments in front of me. Maybe if I had more prepared comments, I would speak uh, slightly different or a little more carefully. But I'm just going to answer your questions one by one. You said, how should Christians view and act upon the Sabbath? The New Testament makes it very clear. For example, in Colossians chapter 2, where it says, let no man judge you in regard to a Sabbath. And by the fact that the few indications we have in the New Testament are that Christians met together for fellowship in the early church, the, the apostolic times, they met for church not on the first day, excuse me, not on the last day of the week, the Sabbath, but on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday. And they gathered together there on that um, to recognize that they had a day of worship and rest, but they weren't under obligation under the same Old Testament commandments. So the New Testament basic teaching on the Sabbath is this, that the Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in the rest that he gives us. We should set aside time for worship, and we have wisdom from God that tells us it's wise to set aside time for rest. But as for when that exactly has to be, the Bible doesn't tie us down to a specific day. In the Old Testament, the seventh day, the Sabbath, was very clear. In the New Testament, there's the suggestion. I'm not going to claim it's entirely clear, but there's a suggestion that the believers got together on the first day of the week, on Sunday, a, a different aspect there. So we're not commanded to a specific day. Now, you say, how did Jesus do so? Well, Jesus observed the Sabbath, the seventh day. And he did that because he came to perfectly fulfill the Old Testament law and to do it on behalf of those who would believe in him. You see, Jesus's perfect law keeping is credited as righteousness to all those who repent and put their faith in him. So Jesus, yes, did keep the Sabbath. And I want to make it very clear that if a believer today wants to make the seventh day, Saturday, the Sabbath, their day of worship and rest, they have absolute freedom in Jesus Christ to do so. That's why Paul said, let no man judge you regarding a Sabbath. 
He didn't say don't keep the Sabbath. He said, don't let anybody judge you, whether you keep it or you don't keep it. No one should judge you. This is something that Christians can come to an understanding between themselves and God for themselves. Now, you ask this question as well, Hannah. Uh, can you talk about the Ten Commandments in the law and how they relate to us today? Listen, I think that there's a big problem when we talk about the Ten Commandments in the law. And it's simply this, that we often want to separate the Ten Commandments from the rest of the Mosaic law. Uh, you need to understand this. The Ten Commandments are part of the Mosaic law, period. They're part of the Mosaic law, and there are many things in the Mosaic law that are not binding upon believers today because they were either focused towards Israel in their time and place or because those laws uh, are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the ceremonial or the ritual aspect of them. We must remember that if a Christian is required to keep the Ten Commandments just as an ancient Jewish person would be required to keep the Ten Commandments, I see no reason why that Christian should not be under the sacrificial law instead. Either the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and therefore understood in a new covenant aspect, or it's not. Now, please, nobody should make the mistake that I'm trying to say, throw out the Ten Commandments or the Old Testament law. No, we need to know it. We need to study it. We need to teach it because some of it is, I'll give these in no particular order. Some of it is repeated in the New Testament and given us as things that we need to obey today. Some of the Old Testament law reflects the heart of God where the particular expression of obedience in the Old Testament may be different than the way it's expressed today, but the heart of God is the same. But there's a third reason why we need to take a look at the Old Testament law and know it and understand it. It's because it points us to Jesus Christ, both in the fulfillment and in the description of the many different aspects of it. So I would say that Christians are not under the law, and the Ten Commandments are part of the law. Now, most everything in the Ten Commandments is repeated in the New Testament as something for us to observe and do. Absolutely. But we do it because this is what we have under God in the New Covenant shown to us by the heart of God in the Old Covenant. So, Hannah, I hope that answer is helpful for you. Um, let me move on to the next question. Uh, Jose asks, is there anything the church needs to be doing to get ready for the rapture? Your thoughts, please. Jose, I would simply put it like this. What the church needs to do to get ready for the rapture is first and foremost, repent. We need to repent. Repentance is a great and vital message that needs to be brought to the church again and again. Repentance is a word of hope. We don't have to continue on in the same way we've been going. We can have new life and victory over sin in Jesus Christ. Believers need to repent. Repentance is not just something that begins the Christian life, although it does begin the Christian life. 
repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. We could talk about that another time. But repentance does not only begin the Christian life. Repentance is something that's done throughout the Christian life. And Christians and churches, they need to repent. They need to be humble before God, and they need to trust God and be ready for whatever difficulties the world, the flesh, or the devil throw at us like never before. So that would be the immediate thought I would have, Jose. The church needs to repent and put its faith in Jesus Christ more strongly than it ever has before. Okay, let me keep going here. Carmel asks, didn't Mary know the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem from Scripture? She knew Scripture well enough. The sense of would have given them a good excuse to go. Sometimes it seems to be an accident that Mary ended up there in the nick of time. Well, Carmel, you're putting your finger on something that I think is very interesting to think about. Number one, we have many misconceptions about the nativity scene and the whole Christmas event as we think about it. Much of what we think about regarding the Christmas event doesn't match up to what the scriptures actually say. And you have mentioned one of those things. The Bible does not say that Mary came into Bethlehem as she was having labor pains. The, the bottom line is we just don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's the case, but the Bible doesn't say that. They could have come into Bethlehem several weeks before she was there to give birth. So that's the one thing to think of. The other thing to think of is, you're exactly right. I am confident that Mary and Joseph knew that the scripture said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. We know that from Mary's song, what is classically in Christian thinking is called her Magnificent. Uh, that's from the Latin word that begins the famous phrase of Mary's song, my soul magnifies the Lord. So Mary's Magnificent. We know from that song that she sang unto the Lord that she was a woman who knew the Bible. There are so many allusions to Old Testament scripture again and again in Mary's song that we just have that confident assurance she knew the scriptures. However, as someone who knew the scriptures, we could be confident that she understood that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. These things were not secrets. Now, I conjecture in my mind, because all we can do is conjecture, that Mary and Joseph, perhaps being in Nazareth, were both looking for an excuse and a reason to go down to Bethlehem, to go down south. And when the command for the census came, they said, thank you, Lord, this is the way that you have provided. We can speculate all day long. Would Mary and Joseph have tried to go down to Bethlehem anyway, without the census? Maybe, but that's just speculation. Nobody can say one way or the other with any degree of certainty. Great question there, Carmel. Let me move on here. Doreen says, uh, uh, blessings, greetings from Mexico City. Hey, Doreen, wonderful. I'm glad to hear you're in Mexico City. I have many friends who are believers in Mexico City. Uh, I got an email just from another one this week. And so I'm very happy that you're down there. I hope that you're connecting with some wonderful believers. God bless you, Doreen. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, Luis says, uh, are there generational curses today? 
And if so, should we pray against them? Thanks in advance. Blessings from Florida. Luis, let me put it to you this way. I believe that there are not generational curses in the way that people use that idea today. The idea that some kind of curse or judgment of God could be passed down through generations on an individual. If you read Ezekiel chapter 18, which makes it very clear to that God regards it as a wicked thing for a person to say that they are being judged for their ancestors' sins. I don't think God puts a curse in the way most people need it as something that has to be broken or something like that. In Jesus Christ, we are redeemed from the curse of the law, it says there in Galatians. And I believe that Jesus had the power to free us from any kind of curse like that. Now, I do believe that in a sense, there are generational curses, not in things that have inherent spiritual power, not something conjured up by a witch or a sorcerer. No, nothing like that. But in the sense that patterns of sin get ingrained in the culture of a family. And now I don't want to get off into talking things that I know very little about. But in talking with a friend of mine, a man named Lou Wing, Dr. Lou Wing, who is a molecular biologist, there is some way that our behavior can even have some measure of influence upon our genetics. Scientists are just beginning to research this and understand this. So th there may be a genetic aspect there is certainly a cultural and a societal aspect in which sin influences a family and subsequent generations. Now, when most people in the church today use the phrase generational curse, that's not what they mean. They mean something more new age-ish, honestly. Um, so we don't believe it in that sense, but we do believe that sin has and certainly can have a effect throughout generations. So that, that's the way that I would answer that. By the way, if anybody is troubled by the idea that there may be some generational curse upon them, all you have to do is read what it says about the curse in Galatians and say simply this, Jesus, I believe that the curse was placed on you on the cross so that I could be set free from it, in the name of Jesus, I'm free from any curse. It's really that simple. There doesn't have to be any kind of ceremony regarding this. It's a very simple thing to put your faith in Jesus Christ and to receive by faith what he has done for you. So I hope that helps you there, Luis. Um, let me go on here. GMS says, are the people in Israel today the biblical Jews? The Bible says in Isaiah 2, when the real Jews get back in the land, it will be no more war in the earth. And it also says that Jesus will bring them back. Okay, GMS, uh, let me tell you, I think we know from both historical and even genetic studies that the Jewish people have this continuous line back to what we would consider to be the Jewish people of the Bible. So yes, 
the people in Israel today are the biblical Jews. Although, let's remember, Israel as a nation is not populated only by Jewish people. There are Arab Israelis. Uh, there's Arab Israelis in the government. There's Arab Israelis in, in different other functions in the society. So th there is a significant proportion of Arab Israelis. All the citizens of Israel are not Jews. Some of them are Arabs. And I suppose there's a few other nationalities just thrown in there for good measure. But in, in any regard, yes, they are the biblical Jews. What you're referring to in Isaiah chapter 2 is one of many passages in the Old Testament prophets that looks down to the ultimate regathering of Israel under the fulfillment of the new covenant. I believe, and I always feel like I need to give a disclaimer about this and simply say that this is something that Christians disagree on. Um, there's some wonderful, intelligent Christians smarter than me who uh, love the Lord and believe their Bibles, and they come to very different conclusions on these things than I do. But I'm going to give you my perspective here. Th that being said, I believe that the Bible teaches very plainly that God is not finished with Israel, with the Jewish people as the Jewish people. They have a remaining place in his plan. And part of that plan in the very end times is Israel will be restored and regathered like never before. What we see now in the land of Israel is only a first fruits, a precursor. It's the trailer before the movie of the ultimate regathering. And I want to remind you something else. When you study the Old Testament passages having to do with the new covenant, you see that this gathering and restoration of Israel is part of the new covenant. We often don't think of it that way. But all I recommend you is you go read the Old Testament passages having to do with the new covenant. And you will see that God's enduring role for the Jewish people um, is there. Now, I need to be very clear about this as well. The Jewish people are chosen, but they are not chosen unto salvation universally. In other words, God's choosing of the Jewish people does not mean that all of them are going to go to heaven. Now, I know that that has been the teaching of some rabbis throughout history. Matter of fact, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, there was a rabbi who taught basically this, that Abraham stood at the gates of hell and he looked at everybody who was entering into hell just to make sure that none of his covenant descendants by accident started to go into hell. And if there was such a one, one of his Jewish descendants, he would stop them and send them to heaven instead. So there are people who think that salvation has to do with genetics and, and uh, it just belonged to the right family. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Jews are a chosen people, but they are chosen to have an instrumental role in God's unfolding plan of the ages. God had to choose a people to express what his kingdom would be like. And so he chose the Jewish people. God had to choose a place to express these things. So he chose the land of Israel. God had to choose a people who would be the custodians and the recipients of his word. God especially had to choose a people who would bring forth his Messiah. For 
all of those things and more, the Jewish people are the chosen people. And God's purpose for the Jewish people is not completed. Now, this chosen status before God, sometimes it has been a great blessing for the Jewish people. Sometimes it has been a great burden for them to bear. But in that regard, they are chosen by God. Okay, I hope that answered that for you there. I'm sorry to go off a little bit too long on that question. Um, Sono says, when Peter closed his first epistle, he was, was he using symbolism when he mentioned the saints in Rome? Or was he actually leading a church in Rome at that time? Well, I, I, I think you make a reference there to Babylon. And that's really the reference there at the end of 1 Peter. I'm taking a quick look here at 1 Peter at the very end. It says, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Well, okay. I think Peter is speaking symbolically, and likely he is speaking from Rome, though not absolutely. The idea of Babylon in the Bible cannot be only connected to Rome, not by any means. So I don't have a problem with saying that Peter wrote this from Rome, but I don't think that that mention demands it. Babylon is not only a place, a real city and a real empire in Old Testament times, but it's also a concept in the Bible. And the concept of Babylon basically is that it is the typification of the world. You have Babylon, which is the world, city of the world, and you have Jerusalem, which is the city of God, representing those two things. So uh, I, I don't think the text demands that it be Rome, but it certainly suggests it. Now, I, I would also say this, is that um, was he actually leading a church in Rome? He very well could have been. Very well could have been. Um, I, again, I don't have a problem with that. We know this. We know that Peter did not found the church in Rome. Peter didn't found it. Paul didn't found it. It was founded by anonymous scattered believers who came and established congregations there in Rome. When Paul came to Rome, there was already a congregation there. And Peter as well. So we know this from New Testament history. And I have to say, I don't have any problem with saying that Peter was the leader of the church in Rome, at least for a time. I don't have a problem if somebody wants to say that Peter was the bishop of Rome, even though that's a highly charged title, because essentially that's what the Pope is. The Pope is a bishop. He just happens to be the bishop of Rome, and that has primacy or preeminence over every other bishop or city or institution, at least in the thinking of Roman Catholics. What I have a problem with is the idea that Peter passed that authority down to anybody else. Um, that's, to me, the great debating point. Uh, 
Sono also adds, by the way, I've been listening to your lectures on church history. I just finished the lecture on Montanism. Thank you for all that you do and give for edification. May the Lord bless you. Well, thank you, Sono. And I do want to say, recommend to folks out there that I have a few different series of church history, both on my website and right here on the YouTube channel. If you'd like to take a walk through church history with me, um, I've got a 20 or so lecture series going through church history. Um, Jane asks this question. David, if one feels spiritual attack, especially during large praise and worship times, what's God's hand in it? Jane, I'll just give you a very quick answer. God's hand is to strengthen you and sustain you in the midst of attack. It doesn't mean anybody's been abandoned. Um, listen, um, the devil can attack people at church just as much as anywhere else. Well, okay, I take that back. Maybe not just as much as anywhere else, but he can certainly attack people at church. So you shouldn't let it kind of throw you or bother you that you were spiritually attacked or maybe someone you know was spiritually attacked at church. That's not the issue. God is in it to strengthen believers when Satan attacks. When any believer is attacked by the world, the flesh, or the devil, God is there to strengthen and give that believer the resources they need to make it through such a time if they will put their attention and their trust in him. Okay, let me go on here. John says, I truly believe that we received the Holy Spirit at the time of salvation. Why did the Samaritans that believed to have to wait for John and Peter to lay hands on them after Philip shared with them? John, it's a very interesting question you ask, and there are people who approach it with a lot of different opinions. There are people who try to make the argument that those Samaritans, or later on, uh, there's another group of believers that experienced a similar thing in the book of Acts, that they were never really saved to begin with. I don't really buy that. I, I would just say this. I do believe with you that every believer receives the Holy Spirit when they believe. Um, the Bible says, if anyone has not the Spirit of God, he doesn't belong to him. Um, the, the Spirit is our seal, our evidence, part, part of the thing that marks us off as being belonging to Jesus Christ. However, I do believe that God has continuing experiences for believers, that a believer's experience of the Holy Spirit does not end at their conversion. And, and so there may be continual fillings or experiences of the Holy Spirit. And my first inclination is to say, and some of those from time to time may be quite remarkable. And so that's what I would say is what you're seeing in those subsequent experiences of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. It's not that they received something that they never had before, but they received something in greater measure or in fresh experience that they did not experience before that. All right, uh, let's keep going here. GMS says, uh, Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says that God created the end in the beginning. If America isn't in the Bible, like you said last week, 
did God forget about America and the present world? Well, GMS, of course, I could answer that very plainly. No, God hasn't forgotten about America. It may just simply be that America does not have a pre-announced place in God's great um, end times scenario. Uh, who knows why? Maybe America will play a significant role, but God just didn't talk about it. Maybe America will go through some judgment and be tremendously diminished in its capabilities before that judgment. I cannot say exactly, but I can just say simply this, is that, yes, God knows the end of the beginning. God certainly knows America and knows whatever role America will or won't play in his unfolding plan of the ages. But um, just because God knows something doesn't mean that he declares everything in his word. Now, I know that people sometimes point to a passage that says, um, there's an Old Testament, I can't remember which prophet it's in, but God says, uh, I, the Lord, will I do anything without telling my prophets ahead of time? Clearly, we understand that's speaking with prophetic exaggeration or hyperbole. There are significant things that God has done that he gave no prophetic forewarning for. I'll give you an example. What God did in and through the church, that is bringing Jew and Gentile together in one body, the New Testament specifically says that that was a mystery not revealed to those in ages past. So I'll just leave it at that and go on here. Um, Sono, I think I've already asked that, answered that question there for you. West asked this question. Hello, good to see you another Thursday. Wanted to ask, how can my faith become stronger? It seems that I have faith at times, but I feel weak in that area at other times. Thanks. West, let me give you two ways very practically that you can build your faith. First of all, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's what it says in Romans chapter 10. So read your Bible, meditate deeply on what the Bible says, talk about the Bible, fill your heart and mind with God's word. That will build your faith because it says in Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But there's a second aspect to building faith, and it's simply this. It's being active with the faith that you have. I know this isn't a perfect analogy, but I could say this, that faith is something like a muscle. When you work it out, it gets stronger. So work out your muscle. Trust God for something small and then something bigger, and then something bigger. Start praying for things, believing, and make a noting about what you pray for. And then when you see those prayers answered, put it in that notebook, and it'll build your faith. Go out and do things where you can see God move and God work, and that will build your faith. And write them down. You'll make note of those things, and those will be like memorials of faith to build your faith. So those are the two basic ways I would speak to you, West, about building your faith. 
Uh, let me go on here to the next question. Um, Levy says, where is the Garden of Eden today? Well, I'll just say this. We don't know. Remember, the Garden of Eden was part of the pre-flood world. And so that world was dramatically transformed in its geography, in its geology. And so it would be absolutely impossible to place where the Garden of Eden was then, where it is today. So it's good that we don't know. I could see all kind of uh, mischief from that. Uh, going on here, um, GMS says, but Romans 11.26 says, all Israel will be saved. Romans 11.26, and so all Israel shall be saved, as is written. Yes. Now, GMS, you may be responding to my comment where I said that not every Jewish person is going to go to heaven. That statement, all Israel will be saved, it's true. Absolutely. I mean, look, it's in the Bible, just as you said, Romans eleven twenty six. But first of all, it regards the future restoration of Israel. That was not God's promise that every Jewish person throughout every generation is automatically going to heaven. That speaks of the restoring of Israel in the very last days. And those Jews who are saved will be saved as everyone is today by their receiving by faith the new covenant given to us in Jesus Christ. In other words, they will put their faith in Jesus, in who he is and what he has done, especially what he did at the cross and the empty tomb. So absolutely, Israel will be saved, but they will not be saved just because they are of Jewish genetics, but because they put their faith in Jesus Christ. I hope that clarifies that for you. Uh, and, and I believe that will happen in the very last days. I, I rejoice that in the last generation or so, more Jewish people have come to faith in Jesus Christ than at any other time in history, as far as we know. This gives us a great preview of the even greater work that God will do in the very last days. Hundred Heart says, Hi, Pastor, your thoughts on the Mandela effect. Can you speak specifically to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, and Luke chapter 17, verse 34? Well, let me this, you know, uh, I'm going to have to claim a temporary brain cramp having to do with the Mandela effect. Uh, I've, of course, heard that term before, but for some reason right now, at the moment, I cannot define it. So I can take a look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, which says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion shall and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Uh, yes, absolutely. Isaiah 11, 6. Luke chapter 17, verse 34. Luke 17, 34, where we read that the, there are two, two 
taken, the other will be taken, the other will be left. Okay, well, I would just say simply this. Um, number one, the Isaiah 11.6 refers to what I believe is the millennial earth. You know, I always want to give disclaimer. There's a lot of disagreement among Christians about these things, but you've asked me, so this is my understanding. Uh, Isaiah 11.6 refers to the millennial earth and the restoration that will happen in the millennial earth. I, I believe that uh, Luke chapter 17, verse 34, I believe that that speaks of the rapture of the church. There are many people who disagree with that. They believe that it's people being caught away to go to the millennial earth. But I, I, my first instinct is to take that passage in Luke and the parallel passage in Matthew as references to the rapture of the church, the catching away of the church. Um, Heber says, I passed around from Brazil and I was listening to your sermons. Early today, I listened to Psalm 37 sermon. Thank you for your teaching. Heber, thank you. I have many dear friends in Brazil as well. Look, if it sounds like I got friends in a lot of places, I do. I, I don't have many famous or influential friends, I suppose hardly at all. But I am blessed to have many friends all over the world. And so I love my brothers in Mexico City. I love my brothers in uh, Brazil. I love my brothers and sisters in uh, Europe. Uh, again, I could go on and on, but uh, again, thank you. I appreciate that. I I'm glad that you enjoy that teaching. Tistu says, what do you think about the black Hebrew Israelites? Do you think that some of the things they say uh, may be true? When I listen to them, I don't want to believe it, but they back up their statements with the Bible. Um, look, we're getting to the end of our program. Tistu, I would say, I have not made a deep study of the Black Hebrew movement. Um, I'm not troubled by the idea that maybe one or two things they say are true. But in the whole, what they teach is just wrong. It's heresy. It's it's just wrong. And um, they they are opposing God with what they do. So... Uh, okay, Jane, you're talking about strong personal praise and prayer. Uh, very disheartening. Well, Jane, again, I would, um, I would have um, scriptures to answer Satan's attack on hand. You're talking about what do you do when Satan attacks um, and and disrupts your time with the Lord? Search out the promises of God's word. And you just repeat them with all faith to the devil. You tell the devil and all his agents, because none of us have likely been attacked directly by the devil himself. But you tell the devil and all his agents that uh, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. You, Satan. Uh, you tell Satan that the Bible says that if I resist you, you must flee from me. That's what it says in the book of James. And we could just go on and on and talk about the great standing and victory we have in Jesus. We have a victory in Jesus, but the victory just doesn't necessarily fall into our lap. It's a victory to be with the empowering and the strengthening of Jesus to be laid hold of in faith. And Jane, I just want you, I'm going to pray for you this week, that God would give you a sense of peace in the midst of the battles that you face just along those lines. Okay, uh, and then finally, I'll end with this. GMS says, 
but the new covenant is only for Israel, according to Hebrews chapter 8. No, uh, again, I would just disagree with you on that, GMS. It's true that from an Old Testament reading of that, which is reflected somewhat in Hebrews, one might think that only the Jewish people were to be the recipients of the new covenant. But really, that is part of the mystery that I made mention of before. Simply put, that God, by the new covenant, brings Jew and Gentile together into a new entity, the church. That is one of the glorious things about the new covenant, is that uh, despite what may have been the expectation of the Jewish people, it is extended to Gentiles as well, to all who will believe. Um, Finally, Jesse says this, and this really will be the last, last question. If we all come from Adam, how do we have different races like Asians, whites, and blacks? Jesse, I would just say simply God built into Adam and Eve the capability for this genetic variation. And because of that genetic variation, we have this uh, great, great diversity among human beings. Well, folks, that's going to be it for today. I'm very pleased that you could join me. I plan on being back here next Thursday afternoon, 12 noon Pacific time, whatever that time is for you. God bless you. Thank you for those who pray for the work of Enduring Word, the work we have of supplying free Bible resources, including a verse-by-verse commentary on the entire Bible. Uh, We have that available out to people. And uh, thanks to you who pray for that work. And, uh, and for those who support it, we're very, very grateful. So God bless you and join you again next Thursday. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.